0: Ezekiel 24, verses 15 through 27. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall you, y- your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died, and on the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you are acting thus? Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword." And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your heads, and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be assigned to you a sign, according to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. On that day your mouth will be opened to the fugitive, and you shall speak and be no longer mute. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. So as we see there at the beginning, and that's a tough one, isn't it? God comes to Ezekiel and says... I've got another word picture for you to do. I'm going to take away the delight of your eyes. I'm going to take your wife at a stroke. It doesn't mean she had a stroke. It just means quickly. And God says to him, you're not allowed to mourn. You're not allowed to grieve. And he gets into more specifics, which we'll get into in a little bit. Have you ever thought about how hard it was to be a prophet? Think about the lives that the prophets were called to. Yeah, they were stoned. Some were sawn. Isaiah was sawn in two. They put him, actually, the history shows that they put him in a log and then cut the log in half. Hosea was told by God, all right, here's what I want you to do as the picture of what Israel's going to do. I want you to marry a prostitute. And then she's going to go and cheat on you and have babies with some other people. And then I want you to go buy her back. And I want you to take her back. Isaiah was told to strip himself naked and walk naked for three and a half years as a picture of the fact that Israel was going to be taken into captivity and hauled away naked. It's not easy to be a prophet. I mean, Jeremiah was beat up, thrown into a well to die. And one day, I'm sure, they're going to be rewarded. But in the life that they had, we look at the prophets. But the prophet's life was hard, and this is a real tough one. i got to be honest with you. As I looked at this, I thought, man, how hard would that be if God were to say to me, Jim, I'm going to take Becky. And you're not allowed to mourn. You're not allowed to weep or grieve. We'll explain in a little bit why he's told this. But, of course, when this happens, the people who are there in Babylon know that his wife has died. They know that they had a great relationship They know that she was the delight of his eyes, and he's not doing the outward mourning signs. He's acting like nothing happened. And of course, the reaction of the people is, why are you acting this way? And he was told to explain why, which we'll get to in a little bit. He was told to explain to them why he was grieving in that manner, and that they were to then grieve in the same manner in a little bit, because God was using him as a word picture to the people of Israel who were there with him in Babylon. That on the day that the judgment actually happens, remember our study last time we were together, uh, the siege on Jerusalem had begun. That very day, Babylon and and Nebuchadnezzar had begun the attack. How long did the siege take? Do you remember from our study? 18 months. It was 18 months that the siege took from 588 BC to 586 BC. It was 18 months. Ezekiel is told that God's going to strike him mute. Once you explain to the people why you're not grieving this way and that they're to do the same thing, you're going to be struck mute. You're not going to be able to speak until the day that a fugitive comes and gives word that the temple and the city have been destroyed. At that moment, your mouth will be back, opened back up again. So not only is he not allowed to grieve, he's even struck mute by God for 18 months. Look at chapter 24, verse 25 through 27. "'As for you, son of man,' God speaking to Ezekiel, "'surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, "'their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes "'and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, "'on that day a fugitive will come to you "'to report to you the news. "'On that day your mouth will be open to the fugitive, "'and you shall speak and be no longer mute.' So you'll be assigned to them and they will know that I'm the Lord. I don't know if you noticed or not, but this won't even be the first time God strikes Ezekiel mute. I'll show you that in just a second, but jump over to chapter 33 and look at verses 21 and 22. Here we see what happens on the day that he finds out that the temple and city have been destroyed. Ezekiel 33, look at verses 21 and 22. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was open and I was no longer mute. So he's allowed to speak when the guy shows up, but God had struck him mute for 18 months. Now I told you that This wasn't the first time God has struck him mute. Some of you may remember, some of you may not. It's been a while since we were in chapter 3. Jump back to chapter 3 and, and look at what God says to Ezekiel in chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. God tells him back then, if you remember, I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you will say to them, "Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear, and he will refuse to hear, let him refuse for their rebellious house." So through the time that God's been using Ezekiel to prophesy to the Jews who were there in Babylon, there were times that he would strike him mute, and he wouldn't be allowed to say anything to them. In other words, well, it's because they're a rebellious house. What's the whole point? They're not listening anyway. But then when I open your mouth, you just tell them what I say. But In the meantime, I'm going to make it so you can't speak. And then this time it happens again, and it lasts for 18 months. Now, I'll be honest with you. This is actually something that God has done to me. There was a time years ago, I don't have time to go into the story, but there was a time years ago where I was dealing with a situation as a pastor. And as I tried to speak, God shut my mouth to the point that I could not speak. It wasn't that I all of a sudden, <clears throat> I lost my voice. It wasn't that. He made it so I could not speak, like, and nothing would come out. Now, in that situation, again, don't have time to tell you the whole story, it wasn't one of those moments where God says, I don't want you to say anything to this person because they're not listening. It was actually a holy, holy moment where God was doing something pretty supernatural at the time, and the preacher in me wanted to talk about what God was doing, And God pretty much shut me up and said, I don't need you right now. (laughs) Because honestly, like I said, if I told you the story, the supernatural thing that God did was amazing. But I wanted to speak and tell this, look at what God's doing. And I wanted to talk about it. And God literally shut my mouth where I could not speak. And it wasn't until I realized that he didn't want me to say anything and let him be God and let him do his own work himself without me. It wasn't until then that he finally released my tongue and I was allowed to speak. But by then I knew, don't say anything about what just happened. Ezekiel, though, during the time, as you're gonna see later in our study, during the time that he's struck mute during those 18 months, and he's not speaking to the Israelites, he compiles prophecies against the Gentile nations foretelling of God's coming judgment on them too. We're, we'll get to that the next time we get together when we look at chapters 25. But if you look real quickly in your Bibles at chapter 25 in Ezekiel, there's a prophecy against Ammon. Then There's prophecy against Moab and Seir and Edom and the Philistia and Tyre and so on. Actually, you're going to see, and we'll be paralleling the two as we study them, that God did the same thing through Jeremiah. Here, God's been dealing with Israel and all the sin that they've done and the judgment that's coming on them. But if you remember, God's still going to judge the Gentile nations too at the end, is he not? And it's going to be a very interesting study because a lot of commentators try to say that all these things that Ezekiel talked about already happened and took place. And I'm going to show you scripturally that most of them haven't. And that actually, these nations that God says, I'm going to bring a judgment on you as well, I'm going to show you as we look at the whole of Scripture, are talking about the last days, the end, the tribulation period, and the end of the tribulation period, and how God's going to judge all the nations at the time as He's purifying Israel and redeeming them to Himself, and then He deals with all the Gentile nations. It's going to be an interesting study when we get into chapters 25 and following. But I also want to just give you a little heads up. Right at this point here, between chapter 24 and chapter 25, the whole tone of the, of the, the The whole book changes. From chapter 1 through chapter 24, we've been looking at God's dealing with Israel and their sin and all the warnings and all the judgment. And I'm sure some of you have gotten weary of all the things that God kept saying over and over and over. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. Well, we looked last week at the fact that finally the day came and that siege that God said was going to happen, all those things that he had foretold began. And now, while it's begun... God comes and tells Ezekiel, I'm going to do another thing through you now, though, and I'm going to take away the delight of your eyes, your wife. Take her away, just like that. You're not allowed to speak about it. You're not allowed to grieve or mourn. I want you to keep your hat on your head and your shoes on your feet. and I don't want you to cover your lip. We'll get into in a little bit what all that means. And you're also going to be struck mute until the day that a fugitive from Jerusalem comes running to you and tells you that the temple and the city have been destroyed. At that moment, I'll open your mouth. And you'll be able to speak to the people again. Chapter 25 and following starts getting into all the judgments that are coming on the gentile nations and then after you do that section we start looking at the millennial kingdom and all the prophecies of what's going to be coming when God literally comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth. And it's going to be pretty cool. And we look at the temple that's going to be built at that time and what it's going to look like and the river that's going to flow from it and where all the people are going to live. And it's going to describe the millennial kingdom. So the, the, the study of Ezekiel changes right here between chapters 24 and 25. We're no longer going to be dealing with Israel's sin. We're going to be dealing with the Gentile nation's sin and then all the promises of what God's going to do for Israel when he sets up his kingdom. So it's going to be interesting for us. But for tonight... Let's pull out some of the valuable and interesting nuggets from our verses for tonight. God is very specific as to what Ezekiel is not allowed to do in his period of personal grief. The first thing we see is he, he cannot mourn or weep. He's not allowed to make any outward emotion or expression of his grief that his wife died. He said this, God told him, you can sigh, but not allowed. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. But mourning and weeping and wailing was a very common thing in the Jewish culture when someone died. There actually were professional mourners. As you're going to see, I'm going to show you a couple of places. Whenever someone died, groups of people would all come just to make noise. I'm sorry? Lazarus is one. We won't have time to look at that one, but Lazarus is one as well. Every, when you see a death, there were people that would be, oh. <laughs> And they would weep and wail and just tear their clothes. And just, it was an outward expression of woe is us. And this is such a horrible thing. And that was a very common thing. When someone died, it was understood that not only would the family do it, but people would come and do it with them. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Mark chapter 5. Look at verses 21 through 24. And then we're going to jump to verse 35 through 43. Mark chapter 5, verse 21, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now we're jumping over just the verses that talk about how that crowd was following Jesus. That, and the woman, remember, who had the issue of blood touches Jesus during that time. And of course, he stops and said, hey, someone just touched me. And, and the, people, the disciples are all like, wait a minute, all these people are touching you because it's a big crowd of people. He said, no, my power left me. And of course the woman comes and says, it was me. And that's what we're skipping over. Look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So here we see there was already a commotion. She had just died. And there was already a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. It was a very common thing. So the fact that Ezekiel doesn't show any expression of grief at all when his wife dies, the delight of his eyes, everybody's like, that's interesting. Let me show you one other place real quick. Go to Acts chapter 9. I think this is an interesting one because who did Jesus take with him into the house, into Jairus's house to, to raise the girl from the dead? Peter, James, and his brother John. The rest of the disciples weren't allowed to come in. He just took those three. In Acts chapter 9, look at verses 36 through 43. It says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to, him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing the tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Sound familiar? And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout Joppa. And many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. But again, even in this situation where Dorcas had died, there were people there weeping and wailing. It was a very, very common thing for the Jewish people to do. But Ezekiel's told, you're not to grieve out loud at all. He's also told to keep his turban on his head and his shoes on his feet. Now, that's interesting, but go to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. Folks, I hope even more tonight that you'll be inspired and encouraged with the fact that when we look at stuff in the Scriptures, it's already been written somewhere else. I'm starting to realize this more and more. The more I spend in this time I spend in the Bible and the more I spend time diving into study, the more I start to realize every word, there's other places that those words are already there. And when you put them together, the scriptures come alive. In Leviticus chapter 10, look at verses 1 through 7. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, these are the sons of Aaron... Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. They go to the the tabernacle and they actually go to offer fire before the Lord, which only certain priests were allowed to do at certain times. They go and offer unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, Aaron doesn't say anything. His sons have just been killed by God, but he doesn't speak. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron. So these are like second cousins to these guys that have been killed. And he said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said, And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithmar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled and do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. So Aaron and his near family aren't allowed to grieve or mourn or weep or wail. But also they were told, don't let the hair of your head hang loose. One of the things that was a part of the weeping and the wailing and the moaning and the grieving was they would tear their clothes. They would pull their hats off their head. There was all these physical demonstrations of their grief and their hair would fall down and Actually, there's a passage, and I'm not going to take the time to turn there because I want to keep going tonight. But actually, you'll see that there's a story in the Scriptures where David ascends the Mount of Olives barefoot as he's mourning. They would take off their shoes. They would, they would pretty much just tear their clothes, tear their hair, tear whatever, and say, oh, I'm undone. I'm undone. Ezekiel's told you're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to do that. Keep your turban on your head. He was also told not to cover... His lip. You're already in chapter 10 of Leviticus. Jump over to chapter 13. Look at verses 45 through 46. It says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. Sound familiar? And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So now we see the the person that was leprous had to tear their clothes. They had to let their hair hang loose. In other words, take their head off. The, The signs that you show of mourning and grieving, the leprous person was to do that. They also were to cover their upper lip. Now, how many of you, and I know we've all done it, have ever been eating, and you got food in your mouth, and somebody asks you a question, and you start to answer, but then you realize, wait a minute, food's in my mouth. What do you automatically do Yes, you, you answer, but you cover your mouth. You're a little, you're a little bit of ashamed of the fact that you're, co- that, that you're speaking with food in your mouth. And we've all done it, haven't we? And that was a part of it as well. I'm going to show you one other passage as well that shows. And they were told, look, if you've got leprosy, you are to tear your clothes, you're to take your hat off, let your hair hang loose, and you're to cover your lip in shame and say, unclean, unclean, so people will stay away from you. Go to Micah chapter 3. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. So here is God showing that he's going to bring a judgment on the prophets of Israel because of their sinfulness and the fact that they're only preach peace when people are feeding them. They preach peace when people don't give them any money or any food, they say ju- they bring war against that person or judgment on that person. He said I'm going to bring a judgment on you guys that's going to make you so ashamed you're going to cover your lips. Again, it was a very common way to show shame and grief. Now he was also told that he wasn't allowed to eat the bread of men. You remember that? Go back to Ezekiel 24. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Verse 17, you can sigh but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban. Put your shoes on your feet. Don't cover your lips. Nor eat the bread of men. Now, this is going to be fun for many of us, if you've been in churches for any length of time, especially Baptist churches, because actually, this is one of the things of the culture of the Jews that we've carried over into our day. This wasn't saying that he wasn't allowed to eat. This was saying you're not allowed to eat, listen, the food that everybody brings you because your wife died. You ever notice in our Baptist churches, I don't know if they do it in other denominations as well, when someone, what's that? It's all around. When someone dies, everybody brings food. (laughs) casseroles yes but they all it's ham or fried chicken too as well but everybody brings food and I want to show you real quickly look at Jeremiah chapter 16 that was very common in the Jewish culture as well and that's actually something of course it involves eating so we'll carry it over into our day but uh we don't want to tear our clothes because that's expensive but we don't mind people bringing us food Jeremiah 16 look at verses 5 through 9 It says, For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning, or go to lament or grieve for them, for I have taken away my peace from this people. My steadfast love and mercy, declares the Lord, both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, and no one shall lament for them, or cut himself, or make himself bald for them. No one shall break bread for the mourner to comfort him for the dead, nor shall anyone give him the cup of consolation to drink for his father and his mother. You shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, this, I, I will silence in this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And when God's talking about the judgment he's going to bring in Israel, he says, look, you're not going to be allowed to eat the food that everybody brings for the mourner. I'm not going to let you do it. And so Ezekiel, his wife dies, everybody finds out they probably brought him food. And he wasn't allowed to eat it, or to grieve aloud, or take his hat off, or cover his lip. So why? Why was God telling him, your wife has died, the delight of your eyes, I'm going to take her from you, and she dies the next day, and you're not allowed to do any of these outward signs. Now, I'm not going to answer that question yet but I want you to be thinking about it, because the answer is pretty interesting and a big, big part of our study tonight. But the people now see him reacting in this manner, not following the typical grieving patterns, and the people all come to him and they say, why are you doing the same question we have? And go back with me now to chapter 24 and look at verses 19 through 24. And listen again to what God says through Ezekiel, chapter 24, verse 19 of Ezekiel. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you are acting thus? Why are you acting this way? Then I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, that's the temple, "...the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul, and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword." In other words, these are captives in Babylon. Their families still, their kids are still back in Jerusalem. God says, I'm going to destroy my temple and my sanctuary, and also going to kill your kids. "...and you shall do," Ezekiel says, "...as I have done, you shall not cover your lips." nor eat the bread of men your turban shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet and you shall not mourn or weep but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another thus shall ezekiel be a sign to you a sign according to all that he has done you shall do and when this comes then you will know that i am the lord so now we find out that ezekiel's not even allowed to grieve in this manner when his wife dies And when they all come and they say, how come? Why are you doing this? Why are you acting in this way? God has him tell them, look, when you hear that the temple's been destroyed, you're not allowed to grieve either. On that day that word comes that the temple has been destroyed and the city's been destroyed and your kids have been destroyed, you are not allowed to grieve either. Just like I've not been allowed to grieve my wife, you're not allowed to grieve the temple, your children, the city of Jerusalem. All the things God said I can't do, you can't do them either on that day. Of course, 18 months down the road. But when that day comes, you're not to do it. But you're to rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Now, we'll get to that in just a second. But let's start trying to deal with this question. Why? Why has God said that Ezekiel can't mourn, and then when the temple's destroyed, the people of Israel can't mourn? Well, there's a few reasons. The first one is actually pretty basic. I think personally, this grief was too deep to have normal grieving practices seem sufficient. This is a serious type of grief and the normal, bring in the mourners and bring in all the, let's just go through the motions. This is a too, too deep of a grief for that, but that's a simple reason. But I think the m- reason that's even more from scripture is how silly to grieve and wail like something horrible had happened when God had been warning them for years, and since they rejected his warnings, they had brought this on themselves. They chose, it. they chose it. God's pretty much saying to them, like he did with Moses, look, you should have known better. Think about David. A man brought this up last, last night after the study came up to me. And he goes, as you're dealing with the, the why they were to react that way, he goes, it reminded me of David when he sinned with Bathsheba. And that child... God had said the child's going to die. Well, of course, what does David do? He goes through all this histrionics to pray that God doesn't kill the child. But God had already said, here's what's coming. Here's the consequence. And when the child died, David surprised everybody because he didn't weep and wail and mourn. Man, you were doing all that stuff when he was alive. And then once the child died, we thought you were going to lose it. He said, no, feed me. Let's go. Let's just move on with life. God said it. I'm, I'm not to say, woe is me. Listen closely. God was saying to them, I have been telling you this over and over and over and over that it was going to come. How foolish will it be for you to go through the motions of, woe is us, the temple is gone, and Jerusalem's been destroyed. You've brought this on yourself. So I don't want to hear all this, woe is us. I've told you this was coming. And you're to groan to one another in your iniquities. Let's actually look at verse 23 in chapter 24. He says, Your turbans shall be on your heads. So that's chapter, tw- sorry, my eyes are getting bad. yeah 23. Your turbans shall be on your heads, and your shoes on your feet, and you shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. As I was looking at that, I thought... That's worded in an interesting enough way that that can't be the first time that's been said. And as I did a little bit more study, I came to realize, I don't know how many of you remember chapter 26 of Leviticus. We spent a lot of time in chapters 26 of Leviticus, way, way back when God told the nation of Israel If before they went into the promised land, if you'll obey me, hear the blessings. And if you disobey, hear the cursings. And here's what I'm going to do. remember, and then I'm going to multiply four times what I'm going to do. And then I'll multiply four times if you don't listen. And he told them how there was going to be no food, no water. They're going to eat their children, all these things. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 26. And look at verses 31 through 39. Leviticus chapter 26. Starting in verse 31, God told them way, way back before they even went into the promised land and I will lay your cities waste and I will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land, and the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left... I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight and they shall flee as one flees from the sword and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies and you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. So when God through Ezekiel says to them, you're not to grieve or mourn when this day comes and the temple's destroyed and the city's destroyed and the land's laid waste, and you're going to rot away in your iniquities, he was quoting from Leviticus chapter 26. In other words, they were to on that day that word came that the temple was destroyed and the city was destroyed and their sons and their daughters had been killed. They were to not go through the, oh, this is so terrible. But they were to say to one another, we're getting what we deserve. You know how I, can know, I know this? Go back to chapter 24 and look at verse 24. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign according to all that he has done you shall do. And when this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. Not you should know, you will know. On that day when this all happens, you're going to come to a realization. He was right. And he's in charge. And it would be, be silly for us to go through the weeping and wailing and groaning motions. He told us. The child died, if you will. And we just groaned to one another in our iniquity. This is because of our sin. Now, I also want to look at how God describes his temple in the city of Jerusalem, but mainly the temple. Look at verse 21. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, God said, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, The delight of your eyes and the yearning of your soul and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. But look at how he describes the temple, the sanctuary. I'm going to profane it. This place that's the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes and the yearning of your soul. And jump over to verse 25. As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters. So here we see two passages where God describes the temple in very interesting words. He describes it as the pride of their power, the delight of their eyes, the yearning of their soul, or their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire. And and as I was looking at those words, I kind of thought to myself, I said, wait a minute. Why is God describing the temple as in these words? Because to be honest with you, did they ever act like the temple was that special? No, if you remember our study, the Jews had been desecrating the temple themselves already. The kings had, were taking in foreign idols and bringing them in, into the temple and other kings were allowed to come in and carry stuff off and, and they actually were setting up altars to other gods in the temple. And remember, we saw when we looked at Jeremiah, how God had taken him through the wall to show him what was going on inside the temple and they were doing drawings on the walls and offering stuff to other gods and they had actually taken some of the holy stuff and moved it off off to the side and put a bale altar in the. So as I read that, I Like, Lord, why are you describing the temple as the pride of their power, the delight of their eyes, their their soul's desire, when that's not how that was? And God showed me that He uses sarcasm. Actually, I can prove it to you. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. See, God says the same thing through Jeremiah to the people of Israel while they're still in the land. And look at chapter 7 verses 1 through 15. It says the word of the Lord that came from sorry the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say hear the word of the Lord all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. So where is Jeremiah to stand and to prophesy? At the gate of the temple. All right, he's standing at the entrance to the temple. Listen to what God says, verse three. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words and then God gives them the deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, you see it? This is the temple of the Lord. He ain't gonna touch this. Don't trust in these deceptive words, he said. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to you of old, to your fathers forever. Behold, you, though, trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, Swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. He says, are you going to actually go worship these other gods and then come into the temple and say, God's protecting us, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Does that sound familiar? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my dwell at my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you personally, or sorry, persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast all of your kinsmen, the offspring of Ephraim. In other words, I'm going to do to the worship pla- to the temple what I did to the worship place in, in, in Samaria and in Shiloh up there. Remember that Israelites of the northern kingdom had already been taken captive. But look at the sarcasm here. He said, don't say to yourself or believe in these deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So when God says to them through Ezekiel, I'm going to take away the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, the desire of your soul or your hearts, your soul's desire. He was being sarcastic because they love to talk about how that's the temple of the Lord. But they didn't worship the Lord of the temple. All of these things should have been true of how they felt about the temple. All of these things should have been true. It should have been the pride of their power, their stronghold of strength, and and the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire. It should have been all those things. But not because of the building itself, but because of who dwelt there. Go with me to Psalm 27. I want to share with you that we make similar mistakes today. We're going to read the whole chapter, 20, chapter 27 of Psalm, but listen closely to the words of David. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. How many of you grew up in churches where they had the first part of this verse? on a wall somewhere, one thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You ever seen those? But the verse doesn't say, I want to just be in the sanctuary. No, I want to go in there so I can gaze on the beauty of the Lord. I'm going to keep reading in a second, but i got to go somewhere. This is not the sanctuary. This is just a building that God has blessed you with to be able to gather in big group to spend some time together worshiping the Lord. But the dwelling place of God is here. There's no special places. Remember the, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well starts asking Jesus, well, you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem, and our fathers tell us that up here in some areas where we're supposed to worship, where is it? And Jesus says, "Let me tell you. Neither there or here, but a time is coming, and now is, where the true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. And don't you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Folks, I have been a pastor for over twenty—sorry, uh, over thirty years now. And one of the things that has grieved me when I was actually pastor of a local congregation." was how many people would fight and treat people horribly because this is the sanctuary. You can't bring anything in there. That's the sanctuary. But they would treat each other horribly. And this is what the Jews were doing. This is the temple of the Lord. But what were they doing throughout the week? Treating each other horribly. But they felt, we're okay because we've got this building and God says, the thing that you say is the light of your eyes and the yearning of your soul and the pride of your power and your stronghold. I'm going to take it. Oh, and your sons and daughters. Did you ever catch that? Oh, and also your sons and daughters. I'm going to take it away. Keep reading. Let me read verse four again, though. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me. He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So this very famous passage, but this one thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord that whole context of the whole passage, and even that same verse said, Why? So I can gaze on his beauty. And the context of the whole psalm is him, him, him. The temple had become their refuge, their stronghold. We're going to be okay because we've got this building. Yet, it's not the building, it's the God of the building, and they had lost him. Remember in Matthew 24? The attitude is still carried over, remember? They led them back into the, God led them back into the land later on after their captivity in Babylon. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, the temple's been rebuilt. And the Jews, the disciples even, come to Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, and they show him all the buildings of the temple. And what does Jesus say? It's going to be torn down. There won't be one stone left upon another. You still don't get it. Here they were with God himself in their presence, the reason for the temple. And they're showing him the buildings, Folks, let me ask you a couple of questions. One, are you more concerned about the building than the people? That's a problem. But here's the real question I want to ask you. Do you rejoice in your salvation or the God of your salvation? Because that's actually something I'm seeing a lot today. is Christians who are just more excited about their salvation than the God of their salvation. They're more excited about the fact that I'm just glad I'm saved. Yet, the God of their salvation, Jesus himself, takes a back seat. Let me ask you another question. We love to say how it's a relationship, not a religion. We've all said it. What's Jesus said to you today? I mean, you're in a relationship, right? What's he been, I'm not asking you to tell me out loud, but I want to ask you, think about it. What are you and Jesus talking about? What's something he showed you today as you spent time with him? Too many of us are just glad we're saved And we had the same same flesh, folks, that the Jews had. The tendency for us to have the same attitudes in all of us. Be careful of rejoicing more in your salvation than the God of your salvation. With me to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 15, Paul says, For this reason... I have to stop. We can't go any further unless we have to look at the verses in front because he said, because of what I just said, I'm about to say something else. Well, we can't get to the something else until we know what he's just said. He's just in the verses prior to this, talked about this awesome salvation that we've been given and how we've been blessed in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms with Christ. But look closely closely at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. What's the next words? In Christ Jesus. Don't miss this. You're going to notice throughout this whole passage that he points out that we are in Christ. All right? Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Jump down to verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace which with it has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Jump down to the end of verse 9. In Christ. Look at again verse 10. As a plan for a fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13. In Him you also when you heard the word of truth. Folks, the context of what he's about to say is, I'm writing to people who are in Christ. And boy, are you in Him. And everything's tied to the fact that you're in Him. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus... And your love for, toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's what I'm praying for you now that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, and having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then it talks about how awesome the power is. But listen closely. Paul says, because we've been given this awesome salvation, I'm writing to the saints who are in him, in Christ. Because of this, and I've heard of your faith and your love for each other. Here's what I'm praying now. That the spirit of God that now dwells within you would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you would know him better. That the eyes of your heart would be open to understand the hope to which he's called us, the riches of his inheritance that is coming, and his immeasurable power for us who believe. In other words, Paul said, my prayer is that you would have the same attitude that I have. And the attitude I have, I've told you about already in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, I want to know Christ. Wait a minute, Paul, don't you think you knew Christ? I mean, you've seen him face to face. You've been taught by him. He blinded you one day, and he taught you for three years face to face. What do you mean you want to know Christ? Oh, he said, if we look at the scriptures, just because we're saved, that's not the finish line. That's the starting line. By the way, i got to be honest with you. Some of us guys see marriage as the finish line. The wives see it as the starting line. Can't wait till we get married. When we get married, then we'll be able to do boom, boom, boom. But the guys are like, I can't wait till I get married. Then I can stop wearing belts. (laughs) But we Christians have that same attitude. Many of us, we see salvation as the finish line. Oh, it's just the beginning. Write this down. Look at it later on. I'm not going to take the time tonight to look there. But Second Peter chapter three, sorry, Second Peter chapter one verse three. In Second Peter chapter one verse three, Paul says that we need to add to our faith virtues such as love, knowledge, and so on. We should be increasing in our walk with the Lord. Don't fall into the same trap of the Jews. Who were just satisfied with the temple, but not the God of the temple. And don't be satisfied with your salvation, but hunger for more. Well, go to Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verses 14 and following. Paul says again, for this reason. And he's just talked about how we've been given this wonderful gospel. And we're, well, let me show you a good verse... uh, 6, real quick, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, he's just talked about how Jews and Gentiles have been united. All the promises that God gave to the Jews that are going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom are ours now, and we've been made partakers of it. And Jews can be saved even be a part of the church now. But because of this, for this reason, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I thought Christ is already in my heart. Yeah, but has he been allowed to take up root? It's one thing to be there. It's another thing to, for him to, allow, to be actually the center of your life. It says actually in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Let me ask you a question we were actually hearing one guy say this tonight, uh, one of the pastors of this church, we were out there talking. He said one of the bumpers that kills him is, God is my co-pilot. He's not the co-pilot, he's the pilot. You, and I, as I thought about him saying that, I, th- I said, you know, if you're uncomfortable, it's probably because you and Jesus are fighting for the same seat. He's the Lord. So my prayer is that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded, listen, in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he goes on and says he's able to do more than we could ever imagine, ask or think according to his power that works within us. Let me ask you a question. Have you gotten to the point where you fully understand how much God loves you? You never will. But are you at least starting to see how big that pool is? I want you to focus this week on not thanking God for your salvation as much as thanking God for a chance to get to know Jesus better. Because that's where your focus should be in your walk with Jesus See, because if you just focus on I'm saved, will trouble come into this this life? And if all you think is, is I'm saved, it causes you to go, well, if I'm saved, why is this bad stuff happening? But if you really are focused on Jesus, what did did David say? Go back and look at it later on in Psalm 27. Even when anybody in anybody's camp against me and all my foes are out to give me, I'm going to be fine. Why? His focus was on Jesus. And when your focus is on Jesus, cancer doesn't win that day. But when I take my eyes off of Jesus and put them on my situation, go through this. So, I'm going to ask you as we close tonight. Do you rejoice in your salvation or in the God of your salvation? Hunger for more of him. Now, I said I was going to close, but I'm going to give you one more scripture. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verse 5. You don't even have to go do this. Just ask God to do it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, look at verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the perseverance or steadfastness of Christ. Do you see it? Go spend some time with Him. If you want to do it tonight, that's great. Don't wait. Maybe first thing tomorrow morning, whatever, you want to spend time. But spend some time right here in verse 5 of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians and say, here Paul prayed that God would direct my heart to the love of Christ. I want to know you more. I want to have that same attitude that Paul had where straining toward what is ahead, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead. Lord, that's not a natural thing for me because my flesh wants to be in charge and I want to live for self, but I don't want to be like that. So would you begin to put in me a hunger? There's one thing I ask one thing I seek. Why was David asking to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? Because it's not natural for David to do it in his own strength, but he asked God to put that heart within him. And so go have some fun getting to know Jesus better. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Love y'all. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.